0: It's good to see you all this morning. I certainly missed you last week. Natalie and I were last week in, uh, in northeast Georgia between Atlanta and Charlotte at a church that I had the privilege of serving in for uh, six years. and. Um, I got to preach on, to this church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. It was like an old school Southern revival. And uh, it was a lot of fun, but it's good to be back with our faith family and just doing a community event on a Thursday. I got it, big. Thank you. I always forget, if you stand right—if you ever want a comfortable place to sit, bring a lawn chair and just come sit right here beside me, like the wind blows really nicely right here, right onto the notes. Uh, I want to thank Ed for sharing the word last week and preaching through Jonah, and um, I know it challenged him in preparing for it, and so I know it challenged all of you, and he, he shared his message with me before, and I was like, man, this is a good word. It's a hard word, but a good word. If you got a Bible, turn to Galatians over the next few weeks. We're going to be reading through the book of Galatians together on Sundays uh, when I get to be in the pulpit. And so we're going to kind of methodically plod through, uh, strategically plod through the book of Galatians. I want to tell you uh, just a story and getting going here. In 1983, in the fall of 1983, so 39 years ago, there was a coup in uh, the island nation of Grenada or Granada. I never know in New England if I'm saying the places or towns by the right name. So I'm going to call it Grenada because that's the way I was raised to say it. Uh, And if I'm getting it wrong, I'll trust that you'll let me know afterwards. Uh, Cuban-backed communists came in and overthrew the government that had been in place there in this really basically peaceful little island nation and they installed a totalitarian dictatorship uh, that was in power for a little bit. They, that, that group uh, implemented martial law. Uh, in the process of all that, there are about a hundred or so dissenters who were like, um, "You came in and you took our country from us." And they weren't really happy, and they disappeared. Uh, including 50 kids. There were 50 kids and teenagers. They were rounded up. They were marched to the city of St. George, and they just were never seen from again. And there was a pastor in Grenada who was kind of a whistleblower, and he said he thought that the government that had just come into power had taken them and uh, ended their lives and then dumped them at sea. In the midst of all this, President Reagan, and I'm not here today to talk about politics, political parties, Americans' role in political anything. Like, this is not that. But it's just a sermon so bear with me, President Reagan noticed that this had happened, and he deployed mil- a military rescue team, and in the middle of the night, they came into Grenada, and literally within one day, the people were freed and liberated. Like, it took one day to end this, uh, this sort of martial law and um, bullying and dangerous uh, society that was trying to be implemented. The people were freed, and order was restored, and the island of Grenada has not had a similar problem since. So in the book of Galatians that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks, there's actually a similar coup. It's not a political coup, but uh, it happens in this region of the Roman Empire among Christians. It's not political, but it is moral and it is theological. There is this group called the Judaizers, and uh, even though the Judaizers aren't called that often in Scripture, we see them in a lot of the books of the New Testament. We see them popping in in Acts. We see them a lot here in Galatians. We see them in other places, and the Judaizers um, were so-called Christians who believed that you had to obey the Jewish law to be fully Christian because um, the gospel, because Jesus Died in the middle of the Jewish what was the Jewish nation. It was the area of first century Palestine. You had a lot of people who practiced the sort of Jewish faith and observed the Mosaic law. Uh, these Judaizers said that they believed, but they also said, to be a Christian, you have to do Leviticus. You have to do Exodus. you have to do the rules to be properly accepted by God. And so they added these rules, and they in this region of Galatia, they were confusing all these new believers. i 'm going to show you how that happened in just a moment. They were making these people who were very excited about Jesus and the gospel, they were making them to be no longer free. And so Paul hears about it, and he sends this letter. Like, this letter is essentially like the American military coming in to liberate the people of Grenada. This letter, the book of Galatians, is being sent in to liberate the Christians in the region of Galatia, uh, to overthrow and to liberate with the gospel. And so over the next, I think, 10 weeks or so, we're going to be in a series called Galatians, the Incomerals. Comparable gospel. Have you ever? Uh, just by a tiny sort of sideshow of hands, right? Have you ever had someone try to present you with a false gospel? With like, to be a Christian, you have to do this, but whatever their this was, it didn't sound quite true. Has that ever happened to anybody in here? Yeah, a few of us in here have experienced something like that. Maybe it was adding something, maybe it was taking something, someone was trying to steal your freedom in Christ and confuse or enslave you spiritually. If that's ever been you, a few sort of side. Raise your hand just now. If anybody's ever said to be a proper Christian, you have to do this thing. You have to add this thing into your life. If anybody, And if you don't do this in addition to believing, if anybody has ever done that to you in any way, then the book of Galatians is a book of the Bible for you. It should be an encouragement to you. So let me read to us Galatians 1, 1 through 10, and then we're going to walk through uh, these verses. And each week, we'll just kind of plod through a little passage. Paul An apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Uh, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, I hope that God will honor his word over the next few minutes in your heart, sometimes like Um, I can kind of race into the message and forget, like, and I just want to encourage us all that we want to hear from the Lord this morning, and most definitely not from me. But let me just kind of go through uh, verse by verse and share some things that stand out. One, this letter is from Paul, who was, in fact, before he was a Christian, he was Jewish. He was a persecutor of Christians. So if anybody understood what it was like to have a gospel that wasn't the gospel, or to be believing something about God that was incorrect, it was Paul. Like, Paul's the guy who's his name's Saul, and he's holding the coats when the first martyr ever in the Christian faith is killed, a guy named Stephen, who was a deacon in the early church. Paul hated Christians. He literally would be given arrest warrants to go and arrest Christians and throw them into prison and have them beaten or even have their lives ended. That was what he was about. And one night, he was on a highway going to execute one of those arrest warrants, and Jesus appeared to him on the highway just a few years Years after the resurrection, and Jesus says, Look, why are you persecuting me? When you're killing and martyring and persecuting these people, you're persecuting me. Why are you doing this? And Paul, in that moment, gives his life to Christ. And the Bible says that scales came off his eyes. And I believe, like, scales came off his heart. He began to see things. And so, Paul then um, is starting churches. He goes on these missionary journeys around the cities of the Roman Empire, and he's starting churches throughout the Roman Empire. And so Paul is writing this, and I love what he says, Paul, an apostle through Jesus, not men. Now, that word apostle is one of those church words that, like, I've grown up hearing all my life, and I don't always know what it means. Like, what's an apostle? Was the apostles just the 12, or are there more? Paul says he's an apostle. I thought there was just 12 apostles. An apostle, in the simplest sense, is a sent-out one. Now, in one sense, like, there were 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and a few others, and there won't be more. Like, Jesse can never say, oh, I am an apostle in the same way that Peter and John and Paul were. Like, we can't say that. Like, this was a group of men and even women who were sent out on a special mission. They walked with Jesus. They were his disciples, his apostles. And so there's some authority that they can claim that we will never claim. But if we read in Ephesians 4, it says that the Holy Spirit that God gave uh, to the church, that there would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And in that sense, an apostle, and there are some of you in the room who have this sort of sensibility about you, it's people who feel sent out. That God didn't just call the apostles to come sit in church and hear sermons for the rest of their life, but he literally has called them to go and think about communities and zip codes and nations and pray for these places. They're ambassadors. They're sent out ones, sent to liberate people. So like Reagan's military went in in the middle of the night to free the people of Grenada, apostles, Paul says, saying he's one of them, some of us even as Christians sort of having that gifting, we are literally kind of sent out to proclaim the good news that there's a king in another land who wants our freedom and has died to accomplish it. And so we are here to proclaim the good news of freedom. So he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters who are with me to the churches of Galatia. I think we have a map up of this, Juliana, if you can throw this up just so you can see where it is. So um, Galatia, this, is, this would be uh, the Mediterranean region today. And Galatia would be the purple, I don't know how well you can, or not purple, the green that sort of does this. Um, this would be modern day Turkey. And the Galatians were, uh, the people of the Galatian region were a group of people. They were a little different from the people that were over on the European side who would be called Asians. And they were a little different than the Syrians and the Cilicians and the other people around there. They were a different group of people. How many of you, by the way, just taking a quick parenthesis? how many of you have family members who immigrated here from Ireland? Your families are of Irish descent. A couple of you in the room. Yep. So in an interesting sort of Thing that I would have never known even uh, before, like getting ready for this series, the Galatians are a Celtic people, just like the Irish and Scottish are a Celtic people. They all started in Northern Europe, in what's today Northern France and Germany, and because of overpopulation, some began to emigrate to the northwest to Ireland and Scotland, and some began to emigrate to the southwest to this area. The Galatians, like if you ever heard of people speaking Gaelic or of Gaelic culture, it's a very similar. Uh, like root of this idea of Galatians as well and so these were a Celtic tribal people and Paul's writing to these people in the midst of these Galatians there are also people who were born of Jewish culture and Jewish descent and they've all kind of come to Christ and they formed these very diverse little house churches throughout the cities of this region And they've become a little church, a a very unique church compared to a lot of the—compared to the first century church in Jerusalem, which was very Jewish, very culturally Palestinian. This is all happening, by the way, about A.D. 50. Jesus dies, crucified, rises from the dead, and about A.D. 30, Paul just a few years later is giving his life to Christ— he sort of goes into an experience where he's being trained and understanding the gospel and being discipled. I and mean, he comes out, begins to go on these journeys, plant these churches, and he's writing this letter in AD 50. So if you're if you're a nerd like me and you like to know when the Bible, uh, books of the Bible were written, if you grab the New Testament and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, all the books that end in I, A, N, S to a people uh, and then go all the way through Revelation, most of them are coming after Galatians. Galatians is one of the earliest books being written in the New Testament, even though it's not necessarily in that order. And so he's writing to Christians uh, in these cities, churches made up of formerly Jewish Christians and sort of cultural Celtic converts, people from Northern Europe who've immigrated here. And he's writing about the gospel, especially to Christians who need to continually learn to apply the gospel. Like these are not church people. It's too early for these to be church people. They don't have down all the moves and the leadership. And Paul doesn't talk here about some of the things he talks about in Romans and in Ephesians and in Thessalonians. This is early in the game. And the biggest threat right now to the church and to these followers is people who come in and want to add other stuff to the gospel. So he says in three and four and five, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying like the grace of God. The unmerited favor of God be on you. And the peace of God. is a very Jewish idea. This idea of shalom and that all would be made right in our hearts and eventually in the world, like Nick was talking about a moment ago, because of the gospel, Paul says, may there be grace, unmerited favor, and peace, the shalom, the perfect, like everything being in harmony among you and in you and eventually in the world because of the gospel. He says, because of Jesus, who rose from the dead, and because of the Father, who had a perfect plan. Because of Jesus' sacrifice and because of God's plan. Does this happen by our effort? No. He's laying the groundwork for the whole book in verses 3 through 5. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the Father. Now in verse 6, he takes a pivot, typically in one of Paul's letters. And Paul wrote, let me see if I can get these right, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, First and 2 Thessalonians. Oh, I got them out of order. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Those are the books he wrote, 13, I think. And in those, he usually does this blessing he names himself and who he's writing with. Then he talks about his audience. It's very typical of a letter in the first century Roman world. And then he'll do kind of a praise to God. And then he'll say something like, and every time I think about you, I thank God for you. If you were writing a letter to our church today, he would typically go, man, every time I think about you, I think about you sitting in this church building in the summer. Sweating because you love Jesus. Like, and I love that about you. And every time I think about you, I think about how your church was nomads and you started in a school, and then you were in a park, and then you were in a theater, and then you were in an old building, and now you're in here, and you've been faithful, and God is going you. And he would say, I celebrate that. And he does this in all the letters. He does this in all of his letters. He has this sort of a blessing and what he's thankful for with them. In verse six, he doesn't do this with the Galatians. The matter is so urgent that he just says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Usually he's encouraging or blessing people here. He's getting right to it. Was anybody ever at home late from curfew and come home to find like your mom or dad sitting up in the living room, landing you're shaking your head, yes, a little bit. Like, yes, me too. Like you'd like, you're gonna sneak in you know, and the house is dark and your mom's just sitting right there and the lazy boy like reclining like, oh, you decided to come on home. Okay, big timer. Like, and you think you're, you think you're good. And she's like, oh, you're too good to, you're too good to call. Okay. You think you're so important and invincible, that you have to let me know you were all right. I hope you had a great time. And then like, my mom would say something like this. I know you did not. Like, did your parents ever do something like that? I know you didn't just do da-da-da-da-da. I cannot believe you said da-da-da-da-da. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's like, hey, this is Paul. I'm sending you a letter to all the churches in the Galatian region. Praise the Lord. God is good. He had a plan for our salvation. And I know you did not just do what I told you not to do. It's like my mom. The one time she told me not to touch the hot stove. And so I would kind of get close. She'd be like, don't touch the hot stove. And I would get close. And finally, she just let me put my hand on the stove, and it burned, and it hurt. And, uh, and I know that, like, she had to love me and feel with my grief, but also be like, I told you, boy, not to put your hand on the stove. What were you doing? That's what Paul's doing right here. I told you it was grace, and it was faith, and it was peace in Christ. And you, what what are you doing? Like, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the good news that I shared. That's exactly what he's doing. And we could say, well, is he being unloving? Is Paul being unloving? Like, these are harsh words. I'm astonished you are quickly deserting Jesus. Is that unloving? No, I don't think so. I think it's totally loving. Concern plus rebuke. Can equal love we now live in a world where like if you rebuke someone and we don't affirm one another constantly that somehow means that we don't love each other and that's not correct at all like concern and rebuke equal love not all grace feels like grace sometimes grace is a warning or a rebuke or a consequence Paul says I'm astonished you are quickly deserting him It's like someone standing at a military post being told to watch the city or watch the group overnight in case an enemy attacks. That's what Paul's saying here. Like, I am stunned that you have deserted the military post of the gospel and of Jesus. Like, you were put here to guard the gate. You were acting like a traitor. You were acting like a turncoat. You're acting like a Benedict Arnold or a Peter Pettigrew. You have sold out the people. What are you doing right now? He's, he, he says, these Judaizers have come in and said, you have to do this to be saved, believe plus whatever. And he says, like, that's like the Cuban-backed militants. Like, why, would, why, why are you letting them come into the camp and have their way? How have you deserted the gospel? Because all the benefits, and this is one of the big ideas today. Here's the truth. All the benefits of the gospel come to us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I think we have a slide for that. All the benefits of the gospel come to us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's the gospel. God gives us his favor by grace, not by earning. It happens through faith. We are saved through faith, not effort, not joining a church, not being baptized, not receiving communion, or not any of that. It's by grace, a gift we cannot earn. My youth pastor as a kid would say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace through faith in Christ alone, and they were deserting that gospel. And so in verse 7, Paul says, it's not that there's another gospel. He says, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If you are a word nerd and you like to underline in your Bible, you might underline in verse um, 6 where he says, different. And then you might underline in verse 7 where he says, another. So really similar words, but very, very different. In fact, that word, uh, that first one, different, means different in kind. And the second one, another, means different in amount. In other words, what the Judaizers were saying is, we're giving you more gospel. And what Paul is saying is, no, they're not giving you more gospel. They're giving you another gospel. And that gospel is no gospel at all. They were saying, oh, the gospel is you have to believe in Christ by grace through faith in Christ, but you also can't eat pork, you have to be circumcised, you have to observe the Sabbath, you have to be a good Jew because Jesus was Jewish, and he was raised to follow some of these laws, so to be Christian, you have to have a different gospel, you have to have more gospel, and Paul says, no, 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 no. That's another gospel, and it's no gospel at all. It's no good news at all to add to it. It would be like every morning when I get up, I grind the coffee at our house, and I put—we make eight cups of coffee. Two for me, two for Nat, every morning. And it would be like if I had my morning cup of coffee this morning, and I said, Natalie, will you fix me another cup of coffee, and she goes, and she has an option at this moment. Like— the idea, of, like, the idea here is, instead of her coming back with coffee, what if she came back with watered-down sawdust? And she's like, I brought you another cup. I'll go, yes, you did bring me another cup. It just wasn't coffee. What the Judaizers are saying is, we're bringing you another cup. And Paul is saying, you're bringing them a cup of sawdust. And he's saying to the church, why are you drinking this? This is not the same thing. This is, in fact, something completely different. There is only one gospel. The Judaizers told them it was gospel, but it was that it was just a different amount. Paul says it's no gospel at all. It's a different kind if it seeks to add to the work of Christ. One idea in this series that we'll hear over and over is this. Any gospel different than the gospel of Jesus as revealed in Scripture is no gospel at all. Any, any gospel different than the gospel of Jesus revealed in Scripture is no gospel at all. People will ask me often. I get asked about the same five questions in the community. I don't know if it's like this for you. Maybe. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, what about the other books of the Bible? You know, the ones that didn't make the cut. Have you ever been asked a question like this before? I get asked this a fair amount. And I'll say to people, yes, I have read those. The problem with them is, A, they tended to have been written decades, if not centuries later, and B, they are a different gospel. They're presenting something that is not scriptural. It's not consistent with the 66 books of the Bible and the 27 books of the New Testament. And that's why they're not in there. Do they have cultural value to understand the culture of a time? Maybe, maybe. But if something presents the gospel and it's contrary to the gospel in Scripture, it is no gospel at all. It, we cannot add to the work of Christ. That's no gospel. If, if it says, oh, well, to receive the gospel, you've got to have works. To receive the gospel, you have to have sacraments to receive the gospel. You have to speak in tongues to receive the gospel. You have to be a member of a church. You have to be dunked to receive the gospel. You have to have this and that. It's it's not the gospel. It's not. There's fruit of following Christ. There's different fruit, but these aren't prerequisites. They're not prerequisites. That's Wrong, And so in verse 8 and 9, I love what Paul says here, because if you ever just see Jesus holding baby lambs and you see the church fathers like in stained glass windows just looking so peaceful, let me read to you what Paul says in 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again. Anyone, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be a curse. Let them go to hell. Damnation. Hell, fire, and damnation if they are preaching to you a contrary word other than the gospel. Anathema. That's the word. Anathema. A curse on them. He says, I would rather these false gospel peddlers die and go to hell than the entire region of Galatia die and go to hell. So a curse beyond them. A curse beyond them if they are presenting a different gospel. He is not playing around right now. And by the way, it's not in the notes, but let me just say, like, sometimes you'll hear people say Mormonism is the same thing as Christianity. It's not. It's wildly different. It's wildly different. And the the easiest biblical refuting for Mormonism is to just... Read Galatians 1, 8, because the whole faith is based on an angel coming to a guy and giving him another whole book of the, another whole part of the Bible, the book of Mormon. It can't be. I mean, Paul says, if an angel comes and says, I'm giving you biblical words, anathema, damnation to them. Doesn't mean we're not loving and nice to Mormons. Natalie ran into some wonderful Mormons the other day and had a very like mutual conversation, but it became very clear that she wasn't interested in becoming a Mormon. And it became very clear that they weren't very interested in becoming followers of Christ. And so she was loving, she shared the truth, and then she moved on and gave them my phone number. No, I don't know if she did that or not. I don't think she did. If she did, they haven't called me. So uh, that would be funny. If, If a religion says an angel has a word from God for you is just, just right out the window. It's not gospel. It can, it cannot be. And Paul talks about it right here. So here's a question. Are there similar threats like the Judaizers today? And I think there are four, and I want to share them with you because they will infiltrate a church so fast. And they can even infiltrate our hearts if we're not saturating ourselves in the gospel. And so here they are. The first threat is actually the threat of the Judaizers. It's a word called legalism. It's that you would have to believe plus behave. That you would have to believe plus behave. The Judaizers are legalists. They, uh, an example would be that you have to have faith plus works. That your works are required for your salvation. Or you have to join the church. That you can't truly be saved unless you join the, a lowercase c church, or that you have to be baptized. That you have, There are denominations in America that will say, unless you're baptized within so many hours of trusting Christ, then your salvation doesn't stick, and you're just as lost as you were before. That's legalism. It's the idea that you have to do something. You can't eat pork. You have to wear these clothes. You have to do these rituals. It's have-tos or no salvation. Believing plus behaving. That's That's what Paul is confronting this whole letter, okay? And that is still a threat today. There are some of you who are newer to following Christ, like the Christians in Galatia, who will sometimes be told from your upbringing or from the community around you, oh, if I'm a Christian, then I have to do da-da-da-da-da. It's not true. It's a false gospel. It's legalism. It looks like the gospel, but it's not grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. If we add to it, it's a false gospel, legalism. The second one that's a threat today is the opposite of that. It's called antinomianism, antinomianism. The idea of antinomianism, if legalism is believe plus behave, antinomianism is believe minus behave. It's that Jesus has died for us and so we can live now like there's no law or we can live anti-law. This is, by the way, the sin of some of the if, if legalism is the church at, in the Galatian region, hence is the sin a lot of the churches, a lot of the Christians in the church at Corinth. So if you read Corinthians, they're applauding a guy who's having an affair with his uh, stepmom. And Paul says, you can't do that. Like in Romans 6, he says, you've been caught, you died to sin, How can you live like it's still your master? You died to sin in Romans 6, 1 and 2. We died to sin. The grace of Jesus and the gospel frees us from sin's penalty, but it doesn't make us moral anarchists. That's a false gospel. If your faith says, dude, you can go get hammered, you can sleep with whoever, you can be greedy, you can rob God, you can be the world, the world revolves around you, like that's antinomianism. And Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. We don't get to just live like hell and stand before God one day and go, oh, it was Jesus, I made him my savior, but I didn't have to make him my Lord. That is the greater danger in our culture today. Here's a third one, syncretism syncretism is believing the gospel, but also believing other lowercase g gospels or worldviews. This would be the sin in the New Testament. If you read in Revelation, the first couple of chapters of Revelation, this would be the sin of the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. It's merging two or more religions or ideologies together. It's mixing the gospel with something unChristian or anti-Christian. Today, I, every day, um, every day I pray for a different nation on planet earth there's a website i can show you if anybody wants and it'll list for you all the countries of the world uh, and you can pray for one a day and so this week i was praying for madagascar and in madagascar uh off the coast of africa there uh is a group that um that i was praying for this week that have mixed the gospel and ancestor worship and that's not the gospel. Like, we can't do that. I uh, was thinking about, I was reading this week also about a, another country where it's like they would mix Jesus and the, and the witch doctors. And if Jesus didn't answer fast enough, they would go to the witch doctors. And like, we, we can't do that. That's syncretism. That's adding another thing to the gospel. In the U.S., we have Jesus plus... I, we could get into all this stuff. Like there's some stuff that's quasi-religious. Like I re- remember growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, and there would be like a phone number you could call, and someone would read you your fu- They would tell you your future. Uh, if you ever did one of those, don't tell me. But do you at least remember some of those commercials? Like I distinctly remember those commercials. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. Like I know Christians who go see mediums and do tarot cards, and like we just can't do it. It's syncretism. We, we cut ourselves off from that because Jesus loves us and he knows our future and he has our best so we don't have to go chase other gods. This also becomes um, when we begin to chase isms like materialism or uh, capitalism or our politics or our ideologies or any of this stuff. This becomes syncretism because these are so embedded into our culture that they have become religions. And we've got to cut them off. It doesn't mean we necessarily sell everything and live in cardboard boxes. It just means we cannot add anything to the gospel. George Barna called this a cut-and-paste approach to making sense of life based on what feels comfortable or convenient, regardless of whether those beliefs are inconsistent or even contradictory. I hate that bumper coexist. I hate it so much, you're not gonna hear me say I hate a lot of things in life, but those coexist bumper stickers, they're just they're just logically inconsistent because you will never see someone riding through the streets of Baghdad or the streets of uh, the largest cities in India with the coexist bumper sticker on there. It's just that's crazy. Each faith system in the world makes exclusive claims. And it's not just Christians. It's not just Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All faith systems are doing this. And so we can't just think that they're going to blend in together. There are places where they stand radically opposed to one another. The fourth thing that would be a threat to the gospel today would be what um, Christian Smith, who was a professor at Notre Dame 25 years ago, called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism is this. It's the moralistic piece is that we all just need to be good people. Let's just be good people, right? Let's all be good. And, and, and moralistic therapeutic deism isn't just a worldview. It's, it's an idea that pretends to be Christianity. Let's just be good people. The therapeutic part is that good people go to heaven. Good people feel good about themselves. And good people generally fit in and have good self-esteem. So let's be good people, so we feel good about ourselves, we fit in, and we feel fine. And then the deism part is the idea that God is this cosmic therapist, this divine butler, this generic sort of God who owns a religious grocery store that I can walk down the aisles and Oh, I like this, I like this prayer. Well, oh, I don't I don't really like this part. Oh, I can get this part. Like, and he's cool with it because he's half Santa Claus, half grandpa, and it's all right. Moralistic therapeutic deism is a very me-centered lowercase G gospel with a God who basically has moral Alzheimer's, who did not send his son to die for our sins, who did not uh, watch Jesus die carrying all the weight of our brokenness, who wants me more happy than holy. There's a lot of people, like when Christian Smith coined this phrase in the mid-90s, he basically said, this is the youth ministry culture of America. So fast forward 25 years, there's There's a generation of people sitting in churches who, if we've not trained our minds and our hearts to bend toward the gospel, not away from it, this is a very natural sort of antinomian, syncretistic way of thinking about life and faith and following Christ. It's not good. It's actually no gospel at all. Anything that would say my comfort is a bigger deal than his glory is a cheap grace and a false substitute for the truth. There's no other gospel. All of those, all of those things we just shared will fail you. We have friends right now who are walking through deep valleys of life and faith. Like... We're praying with them sometimes by the hour because of what they're walking through. And I promise you, legalism will not save them. Syncretism will not save them. Antinomianism is not going to save them. And moralistic therapeutic deism is not going to save them. Only the gospel of Jesus is going to get them through the thing that they're going through. All these will fail you. But I want to tell you today, the gospel will never fail you. If you're here over the next nine weeks, you're going to hear over and over the declaration that the gospel is incomparable. That's the only truly good news for our souls and for our purpose in life. So let me give you four applications in one sentence and then we'll be done. If you've never done so before, trust Christ alone for your salvation today. If you've never given your life to Christ, trust Christ alone today for salvation. What would stop you from doing that? Number two, Thank Jesus that he is enough. The gospel is enough. In Christ, God approves of you. If you hear nothing else today, Christian, hear this. In Christ, God approves of you. He doesn't approve of all Christians generically, but get frustrated with you. No, he approves of you. And that did not come cheaply. Like Jesus had to die for God to approve of us. Jesus had to take the weight of our sin, singular, and the weight, the penalty of our sins on his shoulders and die in our place. But in doing so, he did that willingly. In doing that, Christ now approves of you, Christian. Third thing I would say in light of that, never accept a watered-down gospel from others and never present a watered-down gospel to others. If your grandma — I think we got a slide for that one, if you can get, if your grandma tries to tell you you have to do X to be approved by Jesus, you tell your grandma, grandma, I love you. But no. No. And I'll be honest, like, if you've got co-workers or neighbors or friends who are like, man, I, I love Christians, but like — I, or I, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church, because Christians say such and such is a sin. And everything in you wanting to be liked and loved and kind to your friend wants to say, oh, but that's okay. Jesus loves you no matter what, like you can live however, don't do it. Don't give a watered-down gospel. Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself or herself. Take up your cross and then come follow me. The gospel constantly calls us to die to how we live and think and talk and spend our time and our money and our relationships. Don't peddle a watered-down gospel nor accept a watered-down gospel and then... Finally, fourthly, study God's word to discern and embrace and defend the true gospel of Jesus. Some of you are not babies anymore. Some of you are growing in your faith, and you need to maybe even take on a little bit more meat. You need to begin to learn some doctrine and theology to sure this stuff up so that when tempted to water it down, you can say, no, 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 I know the truth. And you can share it with others. And some of you who, who know this stuff, you need to even be, like, walking in, in, in close proximity with someone else who doesn't know it, helping them understand it, meeting, texting, checking in, saying, let's read this book, let's read this book of the Bible, let's learn this, let's talk this thing through, talking about our faith, like, if you're here and there and someone else is here, you need to be going deeper, getting more meat so that you can help others along on their journey. Thank God that Paul understood the true gospel and loved these people enough to stay present in their life so that when they were abandoning the gospel, abandoning their post, accepting something that wasn't a gospel at all, he knew the gospel well enough and loved them enough to enter into their life and not just affirm them but to call them to truth. Some of you need to be those people. The the symbol or whatever, the branding for this sermon series is an open birdcage. I want to tell you, you were made to leave the cage. Any gospel plus blank is only going to throw you back in the cage. Jesus died to free you, to free you and me. Any gospel plus or gospel minus or any of that will only ever enslave you. It sounds freeing, but only Jesus, only the gospel, will set us free to be free people. That's why one of my favorite books in the, verses in the entire Bible is Galatians 5.1. It says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm, brothers and sisters, so that you no longer accept any yoke of slavery. Let me pray for us.